with foresight, we can start to become more anticipatory to consider the knock-on consequences both of those crises and of our decision-making and our actions in response to them. And foresight's not about predicting the future. It's not about saying where or when crises may hit. It's about considering how they might play out. Hello, welcome to the Chief Disruptor podcast. My name is Gabriel O'Brien, Senior Researcher at Chief Disruptor. This series of podcasts highlights and explores the disruptive strategies, mindsets and technologies taking place across blue chip organisations, startups, scale ups and the public sector. In the podcast, I'm joined by disruptors, innovators and change makers from across the Chief Disruptor community. If you're interested in joining our growing community, please visit chiefdisruptor.com. This week, we welcome onto the podcast Ben Holt, Global Lead for Strategic Foresight at the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent. In particular, Ben represents the Solferino Academy and consults for the different Red Cross and Red Crescent societies worldwide, helping them make sense of their massively uncertain and volatile environments. Across his career, Ben has spent time in a variety of roles within NGOs and humanitarian organisations, from logistics to technology and now strategic foresight. In this episode, we start by exploring what strategic foresight means in the context of the Red Cross and then explore the discipline more conceptually, ultimately answering the question of what is and what isn't strategic foresight. We then move on to thinking about the field in the context of cross-sector organisations and offer up a working example or thought experiment looking at the future of AI, its wide-scale uptake and societal impacts. We then, as always, link it back to disruption, and Ben gives us his disruptive thought of the day. Personally, I've always been interested in futures and strategic foresight, and often find myself getting drawn into following futurists making bold, sweeping predictions on LinkedIn. But the way Ben speaks about strategic foresight is in such realistic and simple terms is very refreshing, and I hope you take away as much from it as I did. For me, the key takeaway was strategic foresight is more than just thinking about where your organisation might fit in in five years' time, but what future would your organisation want to be part of and start asking the right questions that might enable your organisation to be part of shaping that future. As ever, if you enjoyed this podcast, please follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Without further ado, let's jump in. So Ben, hi. Um, thanks for joining the Chief Disruptor podcast. How are you? I'm very well. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So yeah, thanks for the invitation. Good stuff. Good stuff. And I think we're in we're in the midst of some four day weeks at the moment. So I'm feeling quite refreshed and looking forward to having a an enjoyable conversation. I know we're going to sort of touch on strategic foresights and futures today, um, and we'll dive into that sort of in a bit. But I was wondering, um, you know, you've had you've had an interesting career. Um, you've had a number of different roles across NGOs and humanitarian organisations. Um, could you tell us a bit, sort of, give us a bit of an introduction, your own career path? Oh, and I think, you know, interested is one word for it, for sure. It's not necessarily a traditional one. Um, although there is a, you know, coherent threads, I think, running through it. Um, so, yeah, I, I began in the NGO world as a logistician. So dealing with the kind of mechanics of it, literally, you know, the cars, the the trucks, the supplies, the warehouses. So getting hands on with how this stuff worked. Yeah. But, then left and went into the media because that always been that storytelling side to me has always been there. And whilst I was there, I just saw that industry get absolutely sideswiped by 
huge changes in technology, yep. in public behavior, in what it, what the media meant and their business model, right? And that got me interested in how organizations change or don't change and start to see uh, new opportunities, yep. you know, risks, et cetera. And basically that's the thread I've been following since. And that's taken me through working with digital tech, um, innovation, and on into foresight, because all of that really, you're trying to tell stories about the future and convince people <laughs> to go with you into that future, or at least to begin to address the issues that you've identified. Yeah. And that's hard. So uh, yeah, that, that that's the kind of the broad strokes of it. Yeah. What are some of those sort of big changes that you mentioned in sort of the NGO humanitarian space? I think that the big changes are occurring constantly around us in the world, right? The, the, the world is changing, society is shifting. There's a constantly new sets of challenges and issues to deal with. That can be hard within a sector that's well-established and is rooted in a different society. So the NGO world, and we look at the Red Cross, it's been around, you know, 150 years. And yeah. it's rooted in that history, where it emerged, how it was structured, how it manages its resources, its people, its time, its ideas. So some of the biggest changes have been addressing those inheritances. How mm -hmm. do you shift the way that these institutions work so that they can respond to new challenges, they can take advantage of new opportunities like being able to connect with people globally in real time, generate data, uh, prototype and develop new tools quite quickly. Yep. So I think it's just that interplay between the sorts of way things are done and the shift in external context. It's been a battle. It's not easy. Yeah. It's not always done well, but there has been significant shifts. So. Yeah, a continuous process. I guess that never that never stops as well. Um, and, and in your role at the moment, you are global lead for strategic foresight at the Red Cross and Red Crescent, um, and specifically the Solferino Academy. Um, could you tell us, tell us a bit about sort of what you get up to in that role? I think a lot of people would be interested to know what that what that entails. So the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement is global, right? There's 192 different societies around the world that are rooted in their country, their community. They draw their volunteers. They deliver their services in their country. There's then this global coordinating piece, the IFRC, which is there to support and to uh, help to link together these different Red Cross and Red Crescent societies. And that's yeah. the bit I'm in. Then within that, I work in this team, the Solferino Academy, which is effectively a catalyst for change. We're there to work with different parts of that global network as they explore new options for action. They want to uncover new ideas or they want to look at how they currently do things. So we're not there to tell. We're there to support their efforts, to enhance them, to connect different parts of that movement. We do that through three key lenses, innovation, leadership, and strategic foresight. I'm responsible for the strategic foresight piece. Yep. And that's effectively looking ahead at different possible futures, interrogating them, exploring them, considering how we might respond to the new challenges, how we might take advantage of new opportunities, and um, using that to kind of change our strategy, to develop new innovation ideas to challenge some of the orthodoxy in the way that we think and plan 
So yeah, that, that that's that's my job. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people people very interested in that. A bit bit jealous. I'd like to sort of jump into that a bit more because I think kind of what you were talking about then helping the Red Cross sort of make sense of the future. I think one of the one of the big themes that we've seen across our activities has been around uncertainty. Um, it's the theme of a lot of our events. So when you think about the Red Cross, um, Red Crescent specifically. How are you kind of helping the different societies make sense of the uncertain environment and 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 where does strategic foresight sit within that? Well, um, I mean, traditionally, the Red Cross is a crisis response organization, right? We're there to help people and communities who are experiencing a crisis of some kind. Often those crises are unexpected and they can hit suddenly where people are unprepared. So that traditional business model, really, if you want to call it that, is to respond to something after the event. Yeah. With foresight, we can start to become more anticipatory, to consider the knock-on consequences both of those crises and of our decision-making and our actions in response to them. And foresight's not about predicting the future. It's not about saying where or when crises may hit. It's about considering how they might play out. It's about considering where we might want to, to try and end up through our decisions, our investments, our resource uses. And it gets used in practical ways within the organization. So we used it during the early days of the Ukraine yep. crisis. Now, obviously, the movement sprang into action, began to help people immediately, providing aid, support, all of the services the Red Cross is known for. And there was operational foresight going on in the short term where will people be next week where's the front going to move to where are people going to cross the borders where do we need to move supplies to my role was then to look longer term you know looking three to five years into the future looking globally at how the knock-on consequences of that crisis will interact with existing humanitarian issues what the impact might be what the implications of that could be for for our plans our operations our partnerships. And so it provides another lens through which to look at our planning and, and, and our intentions for the future. And so I tend to get asked to work on different aspects of the Red Cross's work, mm. but applying these foresight techniques to help people uncover these and, and explore and examine and understand these different possible futures. So yeah. it, it's varied and it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that, that's interesting. I think you touched on it there, sort of the, the the conceptual element of foresight. And I think a lot of people probably hear the words you know, strategic foresight or futures. Um, that's, there's probably a distinction there. Um, and, and a lot of people sort of see on LinkedIn pe people who have a job title, which is futurist at whatever organization, or, or they might be a chief disruptor. That's probably, you can throw that in the, in, in the ring with that sort of job title. But you know, what, what do we actually mean by street foresight sort of, I guess a definition that's probably difficult to do. And then you, you spoke about some of the methodologies or approaches. What does it look like in practice? You know, mm -hmm. is it bringing in data? Um, is it bringing in technology? Is it uh, brainstorming? I, I'd love to sort of know a bit more about that. Absolutely. Yeah, no problems. So I think you're absolutely right. There is a whole bunch of people out there throwing these words around uh, because they're shiny, they're new, they sound sexy. And therefore, there's a whole range of different uh, 
types of people, different kinds of practices. But I would argue that organizations already constantly talk about the future, whether or not we've ever acknowledged it. Our strategy documents are projecting us a year ahead, two years ahead. They're telling us what we will have achieved by then. And if you look through a strategy document, the word will will crop up a lot. Or the, you know, we will have achieved, this will be possible, we will have grown by this amount. We also encode those futures in our budgets and our growth projections. So we already engaging with the future as organizations through our traditional ways of working. The question is, have we considered what that future will be like when we get there? How might it be different? What new challenges could there be there? What new opportunities, new technologies? Will there be new kinds of material, new kinds of food production, new kinds of technologies that are matured that have changed things around us? And that's where I think organizations often fall down is they don't interrogate that future. They don't think of that future as being kind of flexible and malleable to a degree, because that's where you start to look at possible futures. You know, how might this play out? And by doing that, you're able to help the organization think through potential impact of shocks and surprises so that you're better prepared to deal with things. You can help the organization consider its preferred future rather than just accepting that that future is there as a external thing that will happen and we will arrive in it and it's done to us you can yeah. proactively begin to engage with shaping it so it takes those kind of trite vision statements and turns them into something that can be more practically useful as you design your strategy and you build your organization so that it can be more resilient anticipatory flexible so that's the kind of the, the, the broad piece of it anybody who tells you what the future will be like and what you need to do now is a liar and is not to be trusted and uh there's plenty of those kicking around i'm sure you know go to the seaside and visit somebody with a crystal ball if that's what you yeah. prefer to do in that space um in practice what does it look like because that becomes quite overwhelming right there's enough to deal with now with yeah. living in a complex world it can feel quite dystopian overwhelming mm. difficult at times so how do you add to that and project yourself into the future and make sense of it for me i think there are key historic drivers of change that will always shape the world around us even though the personalities and the details within them will shift so we're talking about the obvious things, economics, politics, technology, demographics, the media. These things have and will always influence the world around us. So where we often begin is with those big drivers. And then you start to dig into uh, what's emerging in those areas in relation to whatever your central question what what the future of what are you exploring so at the minute i'm doing a project looking at food security yeah so what's driving the issues that affect people's ability to access decent food so by starting with those kind of key drivers you can start to dig into that start to give you some structure and 
the Red Cross has this incredible global reach, so we can act as a sensing network, right? We can surface insight and ideas and spot these weak emerging signals quite early if we're able to tap into the communities within which we're rooted, right? But you can also then bring in external experts with deep specialism in some specific aspect of that, and they yeah. provide really interesting insight, ideas, challenges to what you thought might be happening in those areas that starts to build this kind of complex systems view of the issue that you're addressing then we go through scenario based exercises so you start to draw these out start to consider how they might interact with each other how they might play out and that becomes that evidence-based storytelling thing you start to articulate a vision of the future again not a prediction just almost a sandbox within which to experiment, to consider your options for action, to figure out what that might be like to live in, how you might deal with it, what your organization might need to do to adapt to it. Mm. So that's where you then spot interesting opportunities, interesting ideas, and you can step those backwards, activities like backcasting, to step those back. Okay, if we wanted to achieve this future state, what would have had to happen immediately before that, and before that, and before that, and today? So you yeah. start to ladder back these future possibilities to concrete action today. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a clear structure. I think one thing I wanted to sort of pick up from, from what you said was around a vision of the future. Um, and I think, I mean, I was, I was going to ask you about, you know, um, what would you say to people who um, don't, don't believe in sort of looking at the future? But I think you've answered that in that. But actually thinking about, the uncertainty or disruption in the current environment. Um, do you think having an idea of where your organization or where you as a person or whatever it might be sit in the future, is that is that more important than ever now, given the amount that's happened in the last three years? Is it, it does that provide, mm. I don't know, I'm not gonna say a competitive advantage, but is it more important than ever that organizations start thinking about you know their vision of the future? Yeah, I think that. And there's several layers to that, I would say. On one level, there's the question of organizational resilience. Okay, so being able to have worked through disruptive scenarios and consider your options for action, perhaps put in place some of the uh, governance that you might need to respond to these challenges, that can be one use of this kind of stuff. So an example there, there was a global logistics company who created a scenario in which all of their planes were grounded. I think in the scenario, it was due to a terrorist incident. And they imagined what would happen if we couldn't fly for a week. What would we do? They gamed it. They identified some weaknesses in their structures. They figured out what they would do. Now, that terrorist attack never happened, but a volcano in Iceland exploded and grounded everybody's planes for a week. Yeah. They were much quicker to respond to that and keep their business flowing than competitors who have not done that. Yeah. So there's a concrete example of where this can be useful. Now, a, a supplementary layer would be to look at the longer-term consequences of our decisions today because we can't pretend we don't know about the environmental issues and the contribution of industry, business, mm -hmm. consumption to those. But we've often would work to the short-term time frame of maximizing profit, shareholder payouts, that short-term strategy. So there's a bigger question there about how these futures can shift your perception of 
time and your responsibility to the future what does it mean to be a good ancestor or what air do you want your grandkids to breathe do yeah. you want there to still be woodland to go play and whatever right these kind of questions by stretching your time horizons and considering how they might play out can quite deeply impact your decision making today and even the models on which you base your you know your business yeah I think a lot of the conversations we've had is kind of around purpose. And I think that, that, that comes in there, isn't it? It's like, what's your yeah. purpose? How do you see your organization? What role does it play in 10 years time? Um, and yeah. this sort of activity, I guess, helps bring that to life. And perhaps some organizations could could think about that rather than having a purpose of, I don't know, you know, I'm sure there's some interesting slogans out there of, of, of different purpose. Um, yeah. I'm going to sort of, maybe turn the turn the, the 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 turn it around on itself a little bit do, do you think there's areas where foresight can improve is there are there common mistakes and misconceptions um i think we touched on those avoiding the the linkedin futurists um it, it, are there areas that 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 it can improve and and that it's perhaps lacking a little bit um i mean i think it, 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 it it's a developing and learning practice there will always be that difficult issue of kind of embedding it within organizations right that's where compromises get made mm. because people pick and choose what they want to listen to or don't want to listen to when you come yeah. up with some kind of compelling evidence or story or argument for change mm. so that can be hard so connecting it back to that kind of so what like what do we yeah. do next with this how do we make this practically useful is the key i think sometimes people drift off into very conceptual stuff philosophical mm. stuff and, and 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 it can be therefore relatively easy to dismiss I think that you can sometimes play it safe, stick within the kind of existing network you've got. You know, it's an interesting intellectual exercise, pull up these different perspectives and create these compelling scenarios. But are you really pushing yourself? Are you dealing with the uncomfortable possibilities? Uh, are you bringing enough different voices to the table to really consider the impact of these decisions that you may or may not make so I think that there's work to be done to broaden participation in it I think a lot of foresight work has been done traditionally by government by the military big corporations yep. so they're actively trying to shape the future but that's their vision of the future and therefore reflects their biases privileges priorities so foresight really needs to broaden the voices, the inclusion, the, the diversity of input to those futures, because a preferred future for one of those other institutions may well not be a preferred future or may have unintended consequences for others. And they're not currently having a chance to shape and discuss and argue for a different future. So I would say that that's got to be a, a, a key area. And that's where there's, it's interesting to me working in a global NGO, because yeah. we have that ability to convene, to reach, to connect with, we draw our power, our strength, our volunteers from around the world, right? So yeah. that's where I think there's real value for NGOs to be using this kind of thing, because we can articulate quite different visions for the future. Um, and I also think that it's important that you don't just think about the future 
right? It's not just this other thing. Therefore, we can forget about everything now. Let's imagine an ideal future and we'll just go towards that and we'll deliver it. Yeah. To make this future stuff useful, you've got to consider what's driving change now. What are your immediate priorities? What hard decisions are there to be made about how you allocate resources and respond to issues now? There's yeah. also, you've got to look at the past, right? Because our institutions, our organizations, they didn't just spring out of nowhere, right? They're based, they, they, they've got historic structures, whether you want to look at it as like tech debt, that's historic decisions that are impacted yeah. our ability to do stuff now and our ability yeah. to change for the future. But that goes, you know, that goes deeper in when you start looking at sort of inequalities, inequities, and discriminations within the system and the way that those systems function. So foresight done well should be forcing you or helping you to look at what, what we learned from the past that we did well, that we should scale and replicate, but what's holding us back, what's really making it difficult for us to change and that we don't want in 10 years time in the future. We don't want to be doing that anymore. We can't yeah. still make decisions like that. So good foresight work would help you unpick some of those legacy issues as well and then make active choices. Like, do we still want to be doing that in the future? And, and, and that's, I think, sometimes lacking, right? It's fun and it's easy to spin up these conceptual, inventive, creative futures. But unpicking what needs to change to, 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 to get there or even to be able to flex enough to deal with yeah. them is the hard, yeah. the hard piece. Yeah. Going to take some of the what we've just spoken about and we take that concept and we're going to apply it to one of the biggest um, hype-fueled trends in the world at the moment which is ai um I, it doesn't need an introduction but i'm gonna do it anyway um you know i think you you, you probably i think that the chat gbt is that is the launching it's the launch pad you've then got people starting to use it it's got the fastest to 100 million users you then have a letter saying that we should stop all mass um models um you know elon musk is a bit annoyed that he didn't keep his shares in open AI. Um, but now I think it's kind of maturing the hype. Where are we in the hype uh, sort of um, uh, the hype train? And, 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 and so if we look at it from a strategic foresight perspective, um, what are the, what from your, it could be from a Red Cross perspective or just personally, what do you think organizations should start asking themselves about the uptake of AI um, uh, uh, kind of, I mean, I, I'll sort of hand over and then maybe pick out a few other bits that, that perhaps are, are in there. A nice small question yeah. <laughs> to discuss. <laughs> um, I think it is a good one that lends itself to foresight because it's a transformative technology. It's not just something that we can layer on to our current ways of working our current organizational structures even our current social norms what we expect a life to look like in terms of education employment retirement productivity connectivity that's all gonna shift and if you think that you can just continue with the same structures and thinking as previously then you're gonna struggle in the future i think that what does that actually mean and look like I think that the way that we divide labor and tasks and responsibility between humans and machines will shift because of AI. So 
machines, AI models are much better at some things than us. And we should embrace that and use that to our advantage. But humans still have brilliant characteristics, traits that are going to be hugely difficult to replicate. And so we lead into those. So, for example, you've got a big complex organization providing services to people, producing stuff. You're generating tons of data now anyway as a byproduct of just passing stuff around your digital systems, capturing information from consumers, from customers. Largely sits unused. It may be getting some kind of analysis or models pulled out of it, but humans even with the support of dumb technology, are not great at processing or using that data, spotting the really interesting patterns within it, exploring it at the scale, the speed, uh, and with the kind of objectivity that, that these machines may be able to do it with. So you can imagine a situation in which we use those kind of AI machine learning models to, 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 to crunch that data, to visualize it, to pull patterns out that humans might not otherwise be able to spot. That's happening in drug discovery, materials discovery, et cetera, et cetera. But to do that, there's also a lot of boring admin that has to happen, right? Our organizations put tons of money into the jobs that are literally shuffling data between one system and another, opening an attachment, extracting some data, logging into somewhere, checking it against something else, filling in a third system, alerting somebody else. That stuff gets in the way of us actually doing what we were employed to do quite often. So I'm a full advocate for delegating a whole bunch of that stuff to automation. Set up an automation team in the British Red Cross to do exactly that. Free up human capacity to do other things, to collaborate together, to use our emotional intelligence, to do creative problem solving, to empathize with people, to spend more time, if you're delivering services, face-to-face -face with other humans, not stuck behind the computer screen trying to find and move the data you need. Mm. So that takes me to the kind of conclusion that AI is not just there to to blow our minds with its deep, complex thoughts and its extravagant new ideas. It's also there to provide some grunt work to us, right? You know, a washing machine does a whole bunch of tasks I don't want to do myself. I don't sit in the garden with a mangle and a washboard and a tub on the weekend. I've got a machine that I chuck it inside of. I don't really know what goes on in there. My washing comes out. Brilliant. I can spend my time doing something more valuable to me, my family, yeah. my life. I kind of see that's the advantage of a bunch of automation technology. And when it's supplemented with the AI stuff, it opens huge new possibilities for how we organize our systems. So anyway, so that, 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 that's one take on it. Yeah. No, no, I, 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 think, I think that that is definitely um, a, a sort of a take shared by others. I think kind of what you were talking about there is, we we had um, someone say we should think of it as sort of augmented intelligence rather than artificial, um, and, and I guess it I guess it comes back to what you were talking about of having a vision. I think maybe the reason why people are scared and there's fear and there's uncertainty is because there isn't a clear vision um, as to how it fits, um, and um, I guess the only visions that we have are 
utopian um novels where robots yeah. take over um perhaps that's that's something that needs defining in in that where it where it sits with society i guess the conversations yeah. will, will will carry on um there's, a, there's an interesting book in that space james lovelock who came up with the gaia theory you know earth as a a a, a single system wrote a book called Novacine, looking at how we as intelligent creatures have created AI, and yeah, it could be a threat, but it could also just be a continuation of of, of that evolution, right? Of the ability yeah. of the world to know itself. But yeah, it's quite a positive vision for the future in which you know, very super intelligent AI is much better at regulating the planet and political <laughs> systems and social systems than humans are. Mm. So it's actually beneficial to us uh, as a species and the, to the planet in the longer term. You know, that that's it's relatively utopian, but it's also it's an interesting uh, sort of thought process to follow. I found that mm. one pretty, yeah, pretty fascinating. Will we have um, AI strategic foresight uh, models? Yeah, <laughs> I think, um, I, think I, I don't know. We, we've already been experimenting with using it because it can be a very good way to surface information quite quickly. You know, yep. can you find me five startups working in Zambia on this kind of project, problem, issue, technology? There you go. It's done in seconds. Yeah. Can you? outline a scenario for social change driven by economic developments in the Balkans over the next 10 years. It will provide you with that remarkably quickly. And now that's not to say I'm going to take that and use it as gospel, but it's a yeah. really interesting starting point and it can flag stuff that you might not have otherwise seen, can provide you with something to use with those experts and other stakeholders to kind of go, well, how does this sound to you? Does it seem realistic? What else is it missing? What do you need to add to it? So absolutely, yeah, I can see how it can be useful there. Mm, no, for sure. We'll, we'll, we'll park AI for now because we we, <laughs> we could go on forever and um, we've got lots of content coming up on that soon. So we'll definitely stay tuned. Um, I'm going to come back to disruption. Um, so obviously this is Chief Disruptor and the word disruption has changed, but um, how does strategic foresight disrupt um i guess i think when we spoke about this was there's an internal and an external mm. part to this um and so i guess maybe if you start with how how do you see disruption and where does it sit within strategic foresight yeah it's a good it's a good question i mean disruption provokes different reactions in people right for some driven by change and that desire to improve and see new things it's a positive for people mm trying to provide stable reliable <laughs> and um <laughs> sort of long-term projects it can be yeah right remember someone saying to me once that you know you're driven by the desire to create new worlds and you're excited by that and enthusiastic by it but don't forget that means destroying an existing world and that's going to create a response from people who don't necessarily want that to happen. Yeah. Um, I think strategic foresight can be disruptive internally within an organization because it challenges the current time frames within which we work and the bureaucracies we've set up to service them. And it can also challenge sort of traditional hierarchies and models of leadership. So 
if you're working with people to consider a longer term future, even if that's only five years out, but it may be further, that stretches it beyond the probably the current budgeting cycle, strategy cycle. Mm. And, and, and that can provoke a kind of immune response from the organization who either mm. might want to dismiss it or, or, or are concerned, you know, are you going to undermine the budget request I've put in for next year because you're now saying that this other thing needs to happen. Yeah. And then in terms of hierarchy, because, you know, we've often rewarded leaders who are decisive, who can have that vision, who can decide what needs to happen, who can steer the ship. But when you start to talk about different possible futures, and you're asking people to spin up scenarios, then you've got multiple different visions and versions, mm. possibilities. That can be quite challenging to some people in leadership positions, mm. and it can give power to people who may not otherwise have influence in those discussions in organizations. Yeah. But on the positive side, that can be an advantage because rather than it being a kind of, zero-sum game, a contest between you and that boss. I'm right. No, I'm right. I'm right. No, I'm right. Yes. I need to be able to say, well, that's one possible future, one scenario, and here's another. That becomes a really useful way to have a dialogue. And what it helps leaders do is to become more comfortable, potentially, with uncertainty, with ambiguity, with being flexible. And they then have the ability to influence the culture of the organization, the systems, the structures to allow the organization to embrace that. So that it is constantly reinterrogating that future and flexing and moving uh, a, a, a little more agilely in the real sense of the word, not just yeah. in the way that it's being chucked around a lot these days. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's interesting because I think a few people have said, I think we were talking about sustainability agendas and how, how you create a strategy for that in an organization. And I think, you know, some people were saying, well, the sea level probably won't be there in two years time. So how can they come up with a strategy for 10 years? And I guess that's kind of links to what that you were saying there. If you can be open and um, listen to different scenarios, um, you perhaps set your organization up to achieve um, a, a goal in 10 years in a better way. Um, if people come and go, which... No, I, I agree, but it's a, it's a, and it's, a, it, it's, it's not a one-off activity, right? Can't just do this as a one hit wonder where you know it's 2023 let's develop our scenarios and our visions for 2033 and then choose the one we want to head towards and get there because that's not the way it works like constantly new things are emerging these big issues interact with each other to create new issues so your organization has to be willing and able to to, to keep its eye on that future keep mm -hmm. re-interrogating it and that can be really powerful and really useful mm, perfect well thanks so much for that and and now we're going to come on to the final bit of the podcast and we're going to do your disruptive thought of the day um the the we've previously had the smart fr front door we've had the multi-story train tracks that was when train strikes were at their at their height um I've had sun cream wipes and crumpet burgers, so I'm gonna I'm gonna withhold my one um, this time and and hand over to you. Is there a is there a disruptive thought of the day you've had recently? I've been pondering this, and I think my disruptive idea is 
a new type of watch. So we've been talking about the future. We've been talking about the past. We've been talking about change. And it made me think about how we see time. We take time as a given. We organize our lives around it. We coordinate using it. It informs our plans. And, and it shapes how we talk about the future. But it's a social construct, right? There is no clear, objective, definite structure for time and the way that we see it when it's manifest in our watch dials and our calendars, yep. et cetera, right? Even our language, different languages have different ways of talking about the future, whether it's seen as being in front of us or behind us because we can't see it yet, whether it's uh, whether we have a future tense in our language or not. And that actually really dramatically shapes how we plan our lives, how we yeah. uh, organize ourselves. Anyways, this led me into this, I uncovered these concepts of, of, of a monochronic versus a polychronic approach to time, right? So in a monochronic culture, time is like linear, it's fixed. People do one thing at a time, punctuality, scheduling. Yep. It's all important and it's seen as a key driver. And interruptions are like disrespectful, they're rude. But in polychronic cultures, it's not seen like that. Time is more flexible, it's a fluid resource. And you might do multiple things at once. Interruptions, diversions are expected and time's less structured. And it's more about relationships, interactions over that punctuality, that schedule, that list of tasks to kind of get through sequentially. Mm -hmm. Looking at a watch on your wrist, like that's a, a, a monochronic thing, right? It slices it out in, 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 in forward moving uh, uh, little, little seconds. So what would a watch look like if it allowed us to measure a different type of time, allowed us to measure the quality of our interactions, mm. the engagement with stuff, time well spent chatting to people that might be seen as a diversion from tasks. How might that change the way that we approach problem solving, how we collaborate, how we connect as people, mm. as communities? So I'm going to try and invent a new kind of watch. <laughs> uh, that's a new one. It's like a Fitbit that just that just uh, absorbs everything else as well, like your interactions. I, I, li I like it. I think, I think, I think that's one of the most creative ones we've had. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad about that. And I don't think Rolex are going to be taking that up, but someone else might. Um, yeah. I mean, you're right, it goes into that Fitbit space, that's measuring, that's measuring well-being in some yeah. forms, right, you know? Yeah. But how, how do you, I mean, you took, there's some countries that measure their happiness and stuff, right? Do we need to move away from GDP, et cetera, to look at mm. different value? And it's a thought experiment. I'm not really going to start tinkering with a bunch of gears and stuff <laughs> like that. But how might you measure people's happiness, engagement, mm. kind of, flow state that they get into when they're being creative would doing that shift the way that we we you know we organize ourselves yeah yeah well i, I think i think there's a there's probably someone out there having a look at that so um we'll keep our eyes peeled um well ben thanks so much for your time it was a really really interesting conversation we covered loads um like you said the past now and the future and um smart watches of the future so um thanks so much for your time it was great to have you it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ben. Well, that concludes this episode of the Chief Disruptor podcast. Thanks so much to Ben for joining us and sharing his insights. I hope it will spark some fruitful conversations over the coming weeks. 
For those of you who are interested in joining our community of disruptive technology and business leaders and our upcoming events, visit our website at chiefdisruptor.com. I hope you enjoyed and see you next time.